Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be discussing all three of the Bad Boys movies, finishing with the latest entry, Bad Boys for Life, as well as talking about Universal's now infamous Dr. Doolittle adaptation with Robert Downey Jr., plus a quick Netflix and chat about I Lost My Body, nominated for Best Animated Feature, and Life Overtakes Me, nominated for Best Documentary Short Subject. Let's get started. My wife's car. Come to the front door. She knows. She always knows. Bad Boy for Life. I'll admit, I was never a fan of the Bad Boys movies. I've tried watching both of them before. I think for um uh now playing podcast, but yeah, I I rewatched them again uh in the lead up for this one, and quite frankly, I just do not like Michael Bay's movies. He's just never going to be a director I like. And yeah, for the first one, it's just straight up from the beginning. It's all hack jokes based on stereotypes. And the storyline uh, was may have been more unique at the time, but has since been done to death. So at, even watching one, one of the precursors to it didn't really work for me. And not to mention the fact that this kind of idealized the idea that, hey, we can just be terrible, terrible cops and don't follow the rules and still be the good guys. And it's just like... Uh, come on, man. Like, in this day and age, you're trying to rewatch uh, something like Bad Boys where it's cops taking things. That's the kind of stuff that you see in, like, Training Day or, you know, um, Brooklyn's Finest, I think, was another one where it's just like, oh, hey, here's what happens when cops actually do take, take the law into their own hands. It's not good. Uh, but nah, Michael Bay's all about that kind of authoritative bullshit. Uh, at any rate, yeah, the jokes are lame. Um, the whole mistaken identity plot is completely unnecessary and avoidable if he had just said, I'm partners with Mike Lowry. And, you know, but no, we gotta have like a, uh-oh, whoopsie doodles, looks like it's the liar revealed. Oh no! And it's like, nah, man, come on. Uh, not to mention the fact that the bad guy is a complete idiot. And you're seeing, a lo- because of all the toxic levels of masculinity here, there's a very under, um, current of homophobia. And that's, common throughout most of Michael Bay's movies, but especially the two Bad Boys movies. That's about the fact that Taylor Leone's character is just completely all over the place. First, oh, she's the scared witness, but now all of a sudden she wants revenge and she's a total badass and then she's the damsel in distress who's got to be saved again. It's just like, why is she here? Why is she here other than to try and hook up with Will Smith? That's the, like, why? She did no, like, once again, this is a problem with Michael Bay as a director. He's terrible at having any sort of cohesive ideas other than, yeah, explosions, and and America's the best, and ex- explosions, and the army, and police, and yeah, we're the best, yeah, yeah, manly men stuff, manly men stuff. And it's just like, come on, dude. It feels like he's overcompensating for something, and it's just like absolutely... A terrible to watch and yeah and it doesn't get any better the, i mean it gets somewhat better in this in the sequel which is at least more of base style and it's much better looking the first bad boys movies is cheaper looking because it's one of his first ones bad boys 2 is a lot better looking it also completely wastes henry rollins in a, in a thankless role like you get henry henry rollins and he's only in there for a, like a glorified cameo that's the best you got for the dude come on and then uh that's about the fact that the best parts are the the best part is pretty much the opening shootout with the KKK, 
like the whole bit that they showed in the trailer and opens off the movie is kind of the peak. Because uh, after that, it's just more of the same juvenile humor, more, even more blatant homophobia. It is, Jesus Christ, the, this movie is just like making gay jokes all every which way it can. It is absolutely loving the idea of, uh-oh, two guys like each other, isn't that funny? <laughs> these guys think they're, people think these guys are gay, isn't that hilarious? Noogie, 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 just, God. Not to mention the fact it's also anti-mental health. It com- it completely mocks the the, the sequel does that too. But uh, I'll get into that. Uh, but it, it likes it's it uh, jokes takes the idea of that. Oh, maybe this kind of line of work messes with your head, and you should talk to shrinks. But no, nah, we can't do that. We, we can't do that with these guys because they're manly men and they're perfect in every which way, and they're peace for pussies. And it's God. Damn, this Michael Bay's a complete hack. Uh, um, yeah, we have an even uh, dumber liar revealed here than in the first one. Because it's just like, oh, when are you going to tell him? When are you going to tell him? And it's like, oh, great. Now like, now we've got that sort of Damocles hanging over for to finally drop on the plot. It's just not very interesting or good. And yeah, relies on more tired jokes. Um Gabrielle Union is introduced as this uh, badass agent for the DEA. And then all of a sudden, because Mike Lowry's got to be the hero, because he's the man, he's got to go save her from Cuba. Like, There's no reason for any of this to go international. Bad boys did not need to go international. And yeah, it is absolutely bonkers and stupid. And I do not like it. Like, it's, it's fine if other people like it, but I can't. I do not like these movies. The only thing I'll give them is that their action is, some of the action is fine and the expl- and it's and some of it is stylized. Bad Boys 2 more so than Bad Boys 1, but both of these are just completely forgettable for me. Come to the first one without Michael Bay at the helm. And I think unsurprisingly, it is the best of the 3. You don't usually see sequels that have been delayed and been in development hell for almost a decade turn out as good, turn out better than the originals. But yet, here we are. Like, this has been teased since 2008. And it didn't start development in the writing stages until 2011, and then again didn't start shooting until 2017. This is a long and store... There have always been like, hey, Bad Boys 3's coming out, Bad Boys 3's coming, Bad Boys 3, Bad Boy 3's coming, Bad Boy 3's coming, any minute now. Any minute now. And yeah, it's it took forever, and yet it is the best of the trilogy. I stand by that. Um, the new directors I got here is a Bel- Belgian duo. Uh, I forget. Let me see what they call them in the movie. Uh, their full names are Adil El Arbi and Bilal Fa- Bilal Fala. I forget what their uh, what they went by in. Um, on screen, on uh, as far as like the directing credit, um, let me see. Let me go to the IMDb because IMDb usually lists like what they're credited as. Um, yeah, Bad Boys for Life. I think it's Adil and Bilal. Uh, yeah, Adil and Bilal are the uh, credit. They go by their first names for the credits, but it's they are. Probably some of the best new action directors on the block. These guys are also slated to do the um, Beverly Hills Cop 4, uh, which is supposed to be in development now. 
and they've shown that they're very capable of it. Like, if they end up making that movie, then it's going to be great. Because these guys have a really unique sense of style. It's kinetic. It's, um, it's, night, it's able to go from fast to slow. It's, it's kind of like a refined version of Michael Bay or Zack Snyder. And it's much better looking than either of them. And I highly commend these guys. These, these are, I've never heard of these guys before. But I do want to, watching this makes me want to check out what they did. They got them the job. Because apparently they did some movies called uh, Gangsta uh, back in 2018. And some movie called Black. Uh, they did a couple. They did a couple episodes of a couple of some Belgian TV shows. So these these are guys that have um, that have a lot of potential uh, in the with action, and I'm very curious to see uh, what they what they do next. Um, if they do end up making that Beverly Hills Cop sequel, it's going to look great. It may be even the best of that series too, but we'll see. Um, on top of that, you have Joe Carnahan. And Peter Craig writing. Peter Craig, best known for... I know he did the Mockingjay movies, which those turned out as well as they could, given the uh, how the, the complete monstrosity that the book was. But he's also best known for The Town. And he wrote Top Gun Maverick coming up. And, yeah, he's been... He's actually uh, the son of Sally Field and uh, somebody else. I forget the guy's name. Something Craig. But, yeah, he's Sally Field's kid. And he's, you know, he's got great uh, stories under his belt. Uh, I haven't seen Bloodfather, which is his other, his last one. Uh, he did Twelve Strong, which is actually a fairly solid movie. Uh, that's the one with um, Chris Hemsworth at, at leading the uh, horse, hor- you know, ho- um, soldiers on horseback after 9-11. Um, solid movie. Uh, I think the actual uh, storyline is even cooler than what they showed up on film, but... This guy, apparently he's doing a Gladiator 2, which was just announced. Weird. But, um, you know, this, you know, this kid's, um, as much as nepotism got him in the door, he's shown himself to be a very competent uh, writer. Uh, and then Joe Carnahan is best known for movies like The Grey and A-Team and uh, Narc. Uh, he also did Smoke and Aces. Uh, what was the other one? What are the other ones he did? Producer. We want writer. Um, oof. He's attached to the Death Wish remake they did uh, a couple years ago, which was awful. But uh, Pride and Glory, uh, Blood Guts, Bullets, and Octane. That's a title. So, yeah, Joe Carnahan, he also um, worked on The Blacklist as well. So, I think he, did he create The Blacklist? Is he the showrunner or the creator? No, that's John Bokenkamp. But yeah, Joe Carnahan has been in the biz for a, for a bit now. I know him best for The Grey, which is a phenomenal movie. And uh, he so having him and Peter Craig attached to write, they elevated this uh, story from these douchebag cops to a much more... It, it's, it's much more interesting now because we're dealing with uh, karma. Your past coming back to haunt you and um, aging. The, like the whole thing is like, I'm getting too old. I'm getting too old. They're old men. They're old men. They're out here. You know, they need to get out of the game. But they do have to recognize the fact that they're getting old and they need to start thinking about how they, you know, how they want to end their lives. And that's a running theme throughout the movie. This movie has themes, running themes. It's not an incoherent mess. Oh my god, it's amazing. It's competent. <laughs> But, um, yeah, they also completely throw out uh, Gabrielle Union for this one and bring in some new love interest who's, you know, who is 
you know, who's it's not like uh, it's played by a bad actress, but she's also got get gotten stuck with a pointless role as the new love interest, and it's kind of disappointing. Um, what's her name? Uh, Paula Nunez. Uh, she's best known for uh, The Sun, which I'd never heard of, and she was also in uh, the Purge TV series. Uh, La, Re- La-, 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 La Reina del Sur. Uh, she apparently has done uh, some, I believe, me- Mexican TV, uh, some kind of Spanish language TV. Pasión Morena, Amor and Custodia. So she's been uh, around the block a bit. Um, hasn't really broken into Hollywood until The Purge uh, as, Esme- as Esme Carmona. But um, yeah, she she's fine here. But at the same point, like, couldn't you bring back Gabrielle Union for this bit? Like, why Why do we need a whole new love interest? Like, is Mike Lauer going to be the bo- like James Bond where there's a new chick every single movie? Like, eh, I'm not into that. Um, but at the same point, like, uh, it's once again, the new stuff isn't bad, but it also feels very calculated as well. Like, the new thing is they have a, a special ops team for the Miami PD, led by uh, Paula Nunez, that has Vanessa Hudgens, uh, who is fairly unrecognizable in this because she's got um, the um, braid, like the side braids, as uh, and some scenes or the full braids in some scenes. Uh, she's very, yeah, you know, she's fairly unrecognizable, and it's like my nephew and I went to see this, and she, he had no idea that was uh, her because you know she doesn't look like. Uh, whereas in um, oh, what was that stupid one she did with uh? Jennifer Lopez. Uh, whereas in that, she looked fairly uh, recognizable. Here, she's much more stylized and much more interesting looking. Um, and plus, she's, you know, you don't receive Vanessa Hutchins as like the badass uh, sort of character. And that's what she kind of is here. Uh, you've also got Charles Melton, who I saw in um, The Sun is Also a Star as this, you know, boring love interest. Here, he's the he's the smart mouth member of the crew. He would be the uh, equivalent to what Will Smith has been and stuff. And then, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ludwig? Alexander Ludwig, uh, who's best known for Viking and um, was also in the Hunger Games uh, as Cato for uh, Hunger Games, uh, for, uh, for the first Hunger Games. He's also in Lone Survivor, Final Girls. He's best known as Bjorn Lothbrok for uh, from Vikings, but yeah, he is um, he's he's like this big burly muscle guy who all, who does all the tech stuff. They kind of sub- it's interesting that they kind of subvert that to be like, here's this big burly muscle bound guy who's got this dark past and is tough, but he's also a, a complete teddy bear. And it talk he's the one who's openly talking about therapy in this movie, and then they kind of mock him for it. And it's that's I'm not into that, but I, I like his character. I think he also does a great job with it as well. Um, but at the same point, like their whole, it feels like their whole reason for being there is to hopefully spin them off into their own either TV series or their own their own movie series, like direct-to-video movie series or something like that. It feels like they're trying to build on the Bad Boys universe and spin it off. And that they definitely do that towards the end, which I, I won't give too much away, but suffice to say that they try to play off something with um, Mike Lowry and the villain of this movie, which is interesting in the movie, 
Except at the end where they try, where once again, it's all trying to build up to some sort of, you know, multi, multi-series cinematic universe or something like that. And it's just like, sometimes you just need to let movies be movies, you know? It's hard, it's, I mean, oh, it's hard not to spin things off in this uh, corporate capitalist-driven industry, but some things you can just leave as movies. Not everything needs to be its own, it needs to be spun off into a TV series or a, a, a spin-off side series or something like that. Not everything needs to try and build a cinematic universe. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the main thing to take away from this is the jokes are better. They're better written. They're better planned out. There's, it relies less on stereotypes and more on character and uh, history and the theme, themes of the movie. Um, some of it is still Martin Lawrence and Will Smith uh, busting each other's balls. But it's a lot less, like, ex- exceedingly macho. It's a lot less toxic. Uh, I'll give it that, but it's it is and it and it becomes uh, a bit of a story about how being a hot-headed cop hasn't has only gotten him, who hasn't gotten you know it has gotten him to you know hurt things and you know has only hurt him at, at, during the course of this movie and he needs to and Michael Howard needs to learn to control himself and rein it in and yeah it's it's a really solid really written movie like it's not amazing but it's good. Like, holy crap, this series can be good when Michael Bay's uh, not at the helm. <laughs> but yeah, it's it, it, it really is a solidly uh, produced movie. And you would think that because it took forever to finally get off the ground, that it would, it, that would end up being like so many other movies that were stuck in development hell. But it's good. And I think it uh, comes down to that it had great screenwriters behind it and the directing team were really good. They're great at directing action. They can do like swooping pan shots and it's all, you know, slowing slowing down at the right paces. It's so well choreographed and shot and executed. It, these guys know their stuff and I'm very very happy to see what they do next cuz I haven't felt this good about a new directing team since the guys who did John Wick. And they've gone on to be amazing one dude is just continually built on the john wick franchise the other dude went on to do deadpool 2 and atomic blonde it's just like oh my god thank you for these two guys and i really hope that adil and bilal do something similar because they managed to take a move a franchise i wasn't into and make me care about it so good for them and yeah if you get the chance even if you haven't seen or liked the first two movies i think you might actually like this because it's a decent action movie and Considering it was also being dumped in January, there's a lot of bad signs going into this movie, but it's not as bad as as you would think it is, and it's a lot of fun, honestly. I had a lot of fun. I feel like film Twitter has robbed me of something with this. 
Film Twitter blew up at Doolittle saying, oh my God, it's this movie is so stupid and insane. Like people were talking about it like it's the next Cats and both came out from Universal. So it's like, oh crap, how'd they have two insanely bad movies in a row? And I watched this on Thursday afternoon. First showing they had in my local theater thinking, oh boy, here comes the madness. And I got a middling family movie. I got a middle-of-the-road, perfectly serviceable family movie. I was denied my disaster. It's like, think of it this way. Film Twitter reviewed this movie like they were being delivered dog shit on a plate. I go to this restaurant expecting dog shit on a plate. And what I get is... A fairly badly cooked steak that's clearly made with earnest. Like, you can tell the chef did their best, but you know, it's, not, it's not working all together. Like, it's not terrible. And so, to be presented with the idea that, hey, isn't this terrible? Isn't it? What have y'all seen that, that this is the, what you consider terrible? I binged through the dregs of the decade of the last decade. If Doolittle, I sat there in Cats and marveled at the insanity of it all. Doolittle comes nowhere near. The closest they get in Doolittle to the insanity of Cats is the very end of the movie. The like the not the very end, but like the climax of the movie is the closest it gets to insanity, the, the insanity of cats. You know what this movie is? This movie is just another f- celebrity voiceover-driven family comedy. It's, it's anachronistic. It has references to things that, that are completely superfluous to the story. All there because, ha-ha, get the reference, ha-ha, get the reference. And yeah, it's not very good. In fact, the animals should not have talked in this movie. This movie was fine until the animals started talking. But the movie itself is just lame. Like, I was promised an absolute train wreck. All I got was a fender bender. And its I feel like I was robbed of that train wreck by by film Twitter, who I think needs to get off their high horse and realize that, oh, a lame family movie with some, with some, like, this is even, this isn't even as bad as the Alvin and the Chipmunks movies or um, those Smurfs movies that Sony did. Like, I've seen the dregs of family movies. I've seen shit that'll turn you white. This is nothing. This, uh, I don't know what it is. I don't know. Maybe, I, once again, I don't want to say it's, it's because I have an immunity to this sort of thing. Like, you know, like I've built, I've seen worse. So something like this doesn't face me. Because I know Corey and Martin over at Double Toasted could not stand this movie. They hated this movie with a burning passion. But I don't see... I, I think what it comes down to is they have a lower tolerance 
for family schlock. Whereas my tolerance has been built up through much worse schlock. Like, I've seen way worse family movies than this. I've seen, you know, like, compared to things like The Oogie Loves or that that 3D Nutcracker movie, which uh, uh, claimed to be for families, or Peter Rabbit. There's a Peter Rabbit sequel coming up. I guarantee you I'm going to hate that Peter Rabbit movie sight unseen. I'm going to hate that Peter Rabbit movie more than I'm going to more than I dislike Doolittle. Hell, I watched it again the day of recording this, the Sunday the 19th with my family, with my mom and my nephew. We all went to see it together. This would have been my second time, their first time. We had fun. This was fine. Like there really were too many insane moments. Like the, there are some dumb moments. There's very clearly anachronistic moments. Like there's a reference to like Angry Birds in there. And bro, like John Cena just uses bro throughout the movie. So yeah, this movie's not, tr- this movie's anachronistic as hell. But I feel like people need to just chill. Like th- this isn't as bad as other bad family movies like compared once again compared to any of the really terrible sony pictures family movies that i've seen this is nothing this is abs this is this is a walk in the park and there are very clearly elements that show they were gonna they intended to make a good movie out of this most of the movie is has solid bones there's a solid skeleton for this movie the problem is i get the feeling that universal producers decided we need celebrity voice cameos even if they don't make any sense and are completely wasted like selena gomez and marion cotillard have like 10 lines each in the whole movie if that i think they i don't even know that they have 10 full lines but yeah, and, and yet we'll act like, oh, they're like we super gets for us. Oh, Selena Gomez and Marion Cotillard are in this movie for like 10 seconds. It's, it's just not as bad as people are making it out to be. It's perfectly fine. Like people freaking out over this compared to Cats? Like Cats was a disaster. This this is nothing. This is uh, this is aiming. F- this is Icarus flying too high to the sun. Is what it is. It's thinking that oh, we can just do this stupid stuff and make and the movie will be fine. Whereas I guarantee you, if they took out the celebrity voice cast, it wouldn't have cost almost two hundred million dollars to make. Take out the ex- ex- excessive celebrity cast. Make it all about the ant. Make it more like Life of Pi. You would have had a fa- fairly solid family movie on your hands. The celebrity voice cast is completely unnecessary and adds nothing to this movie other than, like, punch-up jokes. This movie actually reminds me of an old Patton Oswalt bit. He, one of his, uh, I think his second CD, he was talking about his time as a screen, as, like, a punch-up writer in Hollywood. And he talked about how um, these produ- these animated movie producers would bring him in and he's like, we need you to write Punch-Up for the script. Okay, uh, okay, well, here's some stuff. Uh, well, th- we can do add this here and that. And then they're like, no, no, no. We need you to write jokes that we'll have the actor say off screen and then just pi- p- 
we'll just you know pile them in wherever it fits in the movie and that's ADR punch up dialogue is everywhere if you know where to look for it and it is some of the dumbest laziest way of trying to punch of trying to make a movie better that that there ever will be and there's a ton of it in this movie that this movie reminds me of that Patton Oswalt bit a lot and it now I'm thinking of John Cena do, 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 you know, reciting some of the lines from that bit, which are absolutely tasteless. Oh, God. I fell onto my bottom into some butterscotch. God, I need to go listen to that bit again. It's so great. Um, suffice to say that, yes, take out the celebrity cast. You cut off a good chunk of your budget right there. And you don't need... And you can just make it all about him talking to the animals. This kid's learning to talk to the animals, too. And uh, it's all, and it, the story stays the same, and it's a perfectly serviceable movie. Trying to make it hip and with the kids by like, uh, you know, it reminds me of like, um, you know, Family Guy has done those jokes before where it's like, here's this unnecessary animated movie, and then here's this unnecessarily animated hip character. Like, what was it? Like a zebra? Um, like an urban zebra or something like that? Whatever. You, 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 we, this whole aspect of Hollywood has been a trope for decades, since like the 80s and 90s, and it's tired. And I think relying on tired tropes that these aging producers refuse to let go is the problem. None of this movie is any worse for it. Like, compared to the Dr. Doolittle sequels after Eddie Murphy decided he couldn't take it anymore, yeah, those are... Those aren't good. Like, I don't even think the Dr. Doolittle movies with Eddie Murphy were the particularly that good. This, I would rather watch this than try to go back and watch the Eddie Murphy Dr. Doolittle movies. Because I feel like those are just, just drenching in 90s, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, um, that Gen X sort of, uh, ironic hate, ironic, like, snark. And the, like Chris Rock is the talking guinea pig, and Norm Macdonald from SNL is gonna be the talking dog. And it's like, God damn, God, it's yeah. Trying to go back, and especially if you try to watch the sequels where Eddie Murphy doesn't even want to be in there, that where Eddie Murphy just doesn't show up, and it's all, um, I think it's uh, what's her name, Rudy from the Cosby Show. Uh, I think she had to take over for the series. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah, this is nothing compared to those. Yeah, I think people forgot just how bad this franchise, this this property got. This is nothing. This is an overbloated family movie that overshot its uh, shot and failed. But it's not, this isn't a disaster. Don't get, don't be fooled by, uh, you know, hyper, hyperbolic uh, critics. This is just, this is just a perfectly serviceable family movie, all things considered. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. So I've been digging through the Netflix um, nominees for uh, the Academy Awards. The first two I got out of the way were uh, I Lost My Body... Uh, who I learned is from the director of Amelie. Amelie? Hello, I am Amelie. I have a spoon. <laughs> Sorry, I, I get 
That's all I'll ever think about. I love Amelie. Is I love Amelie, but all I'll ever think, all I'll ever think about with Amelie is Justin McElroy doing the Amelie voice. Amelie. <laughs> I'm a dork. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, this is the director of Amelie. Uh, it's based on a novel called Happy Hand. I've never heard of it. I'll have to check it out. This because it's an interesting premise. It's a weird premise, but it's a very interesting premise. It's um. It's also fairly stagnant animation. It's 2D animation, fairly well drawn and almost kind of rotoscopy. It's got that kind of uh, detail to it. But the premise is you, you're cutting between the present where um, a disembodied hand is crawling throughout, I believe, Paris, what, uh, some French city, and cutting back to the hand's original owner through various memories in his life. Uh, the, the, um, uh, in the English dub, it's played, but he's played by Dev Patel and the main thrust of the movie, the main thrust of the story, the premise and the storyline is he is in a rut. Um, he suffers a tra uh, traumatic, um, uh, you know, tragedy in his life. I won't give away what they, they explain. That's a big give. That's a big, um, reveal in the movie, but. Um, suffice to say that he suffered a traumatic incident and he's in a rut when he is delivering pizza and, um, has a conversation with, um, a woman, uh, after f screwing up her pizza order, um, and, uh, at, uh, they just have this long extended conversation and, um, he, uh, gets obsessed with her to the point, not like creepy obsessed but enough to be like he figures out you know they talk they're, through their discussion he learns that she's a librarian and he uh finds out which library app just by calling around the different libraries um and the and he uh tries to form a relationship with her but as you can tell through that you know uh, premise that that thing you know when she finds that when she finds out that oh you're the you're the dude who screwed up my pizza order things don't exactly go well for him but uh the woman's played by Olia Shawkat uh from maybe from from Arrested Development and he also but he also in finding her ends up working for her uncle played by George Went um as a carpentry apprentice and he actually begins to uh love working uh carpent doing carpentry and he and so he is trying to you know he he builds up this relationship with um this girl and, it, and you know the big reveal happens and then that's when things start to unravel about what exactly happened to this guy and that all throughout this time like it's cutting back and forth between uh, the, the past where, um, where we learn, you know, where he first meet, learns about this girl and first, uh, becomes an apprentice to the present where his where his disembodied hand is just crawling around trying to find, um, his body. And eventually it ends on this kind of ambiguous note. And I think that's kind of, I think what I came to realize about, um, this sort of movie is that french art house style like like i don't know if this qualifies as french art house per se but a lot of the french um style is very distant and cold and not very engaging it's very um 
like it's it 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 allows you to observe uh, what's going on, but never really engages you. Which I feel a lot British and um, American cinema are much more willing to do. And I don't know if it's just the French prefer to be at a distance and observe. Um, and I know not, I'm cer- and I'm certain not all French movies are like that. I'm sure there are plenty of French movies that aren't like that. But a lot of the crossover French movies, especially like the French New Wave, that sort of thing, there was always that sort of like, uh, c'est la vie, such is life, smoke on a cigarette. And it's just like this cold observational look at the world as opposed to, say, Scandinavian, which gets much more into the darker recesses of our souls, or Japanese, or Japanese and uh, various Eastern uh, styles, uh, which are much more flamboyant and being willing to be crazy, even more so than the even more so than America and Britain. Like the Eastern cinema, you get things like Bollywood, Hong Kong, uh, kung fu movies, just all the, all the sorts of crazy stuff that comes out of uh, Japanese cinema, from horror to action adventure tokusatsu style stuff like eastern cinema is much more uh, bombastic and what you get um with america and to an extent britain is some sort of mix between that sort of colder european style and the much more uh flamboyant uh eastern style and uh, yeah, that's, I, I guess it just comes down to the fact that this colder, more distant, observational sort of movie is never going to work for me. It's why I didn't care much for Queen and Slim. It's why I didn't care much for... Um, uh, I know 1917 did a bit of this as well. That it's, it's just never going to work for me. I've been raised on Japanese, like, anime and tokusatsu and American cartoons. and I, I prefer to be engaged by what I'm watching rather than just be, like, explained to the entire time. And I feel like, I feel like watching things like this are much more like sitting through a college lecture and a lot less like watching a movie, which I feel like... I've always... I've said this before, um... My approach to filmmaking is storytelling. And how you tell your story is uh, how I engage with you. So one of my favorite movies of the decade, my favorite movie of last year, Godzilla King of the Monsters, is like a dad telling a monster movie story to his kids. And he does all the voices, and here comes Godzilla. And it's like really engaging especially for somebody who's a fan it's you can tell the movie was made by fans of the of the franchise and they gave other fans of the franchise what we've been wanting and then you compare that to like i lost my body which is much more like being lectured to or having a very slow drawn out conversation never really engages you it never really compels you to listen and it's not bad. It's not a bad movie. It's just this style will never really work for me, and I have to, and I just have to admit that. I also think it's not exactly comparative to um, the other some of the other nominees, like Klaus. Very engaging, very well animated movie. Missing Link. Very well done stop motion, and then even Toy Story Four and um, How to Train Your Dragon Three. Despite the fact that they're both corporate sequels and just nominated there because all it uh, with whatever DreamWorks and Disney movies will get nominated for uh, the Oscars, but 
both of those movies are still very good movies. And they're very well animated. Whereas here, it felt... I felt like you could pick a Japanese Japanese animated movie or maybe some other animated movie out there. And I feel like this only got nominated because the the Academy uh, nominating board has, has that kind of taste. They're always going to have that kind of taste. This is the kind of stuff that they lap up. And I'm just never going to be that kind of, you know, consumer I, or whatever, however you want to uh, define it. But yeah, I Lost My Body is fine. I don't think you need to see it. If this is, if you're into more artsier French, especially if you're into French cinema, you'll probably like it. This just did not work for me at all. Uh, going on to the documentary, though, I was interested to see that the documentary short, um, one of the documentary shorts was on, was uh, presented by Netflix. Uh, and it is heartbreaking to watch. It's only like half an hour long, but it's about specifically refugees from various parts of Europe. And then eventually they cover Syria and it, there's basically this condition that uh, that has arisen in ref, in the children of refugees, where when they're after escaping the trauma that they witnessed in their home country, they come to their new country that was originally documented in Sweden, which most which is where most of the documentary takes place, but has since been documented in Australia, in America, and various other places where refugees have escaped to, and. What is happening is these children who are suffering from various traumas brought on by the escape and then subsequent persecution and, um, you know, dis, dis, uh, distrust by their new adoptive countries. A lot of these kids, you know, there's not a lot. I mean, 200 cases so far. Um, but these kids, there's a subsection of these kids who have gone catatonic. Straight up, unresponsive, like uh, comatose states, and the parents are now having to deal with all of the asylum-seeking um, hurdles, as well as you know trying to adapt to this new work to this new home where they're not wanted in a lot of cases, and now their kid has gone catatonic, and a lot of times there's no guarantee you know there's no guarantee of like what triggered it. But basically, it happens because these kids have suffered trauma brought on by what happened, whatever caused them to leave their home country, to the, to coming to their um, host country. Something along that process caused such a trauma in them that they go catatonic, and it's still being studied. But a big, the biggest problem is that. While these these kids are in limbo, their entire families are in limbo because they're asylum seekers and they're refugees. And the fact of the matter is, no matter what these kid these families go through, they will always be seen as like this parasite coming to whatever host country they're in. Because even in Sweden and Germany, where they're open, you know, just welcoming these people because they recognize the trauma they've been through, there's always that contingent of people who are you see who see these. These lo the you know these people at their lowest point in their lives suffering all kinds of trauma and tragedy and see them as as par as you know parasites somebody coming off to leech someone pe these people who have no skills coming to leech off of their system because uh, of their goodwill and that's and it's 
that I feel like that mindset is leading people to mistreat these and mistreat these refugees and causing more pressure, more stress onto these kids who are su- who are then subsequently suffering this 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 um I forget what they called it. Uh let me see if if they gave it I know they gave it a name. But they basically this um this you know this this whole withdrawal uh, resignation syndrome is the uh, terminology for it in terms of uh, the medical terminology for it. But yeah, this idea that these these kids, a lot of them are kids, some of them are teenagers, a lot of them are younger kids. And this has been going on since the, the first documented instances were in between 2003 and 2005. And this has been going on since then. And it's only gotten worse because there have been a lot more people driven to seek asylum in Europe, in America, in Canada, in Australia, in all these places. And they continually are met with distrust, distaste, disdain. And on top of all of that, the tragedies they suffered just from before they sought asylum to getting to seeking asylum... To now, to now trying to maintain their asylum status is heartbreaking. Like, they're even finding this in the refugee camps in Australia, and I think some in America as well. Just the sheer trauma these kids have gone through has driven them completely catatonic, and nobody is doing really anything about it because they're seen as this other. They're seen as the other. They're not our problem. And I think it just, we just need to, we, we need to recognize that what we're doing isn't helping and that there needs to be a better way to help these, these, this, these families and specifically these kids. But yeah. Um, so yeah, if you want a heartbreaker and a tearjerker, go watch Life Overtakes Me. I'm very curious to see how the other short uh, subject documentaries um, turn out, if they're, how comparable they are to this, because this, this is a real heartbreaker uh, watching it. But yeah. Um, that covers it for this week's episode. Um, I'm not going to do a full, uh, trailer talk, but I do want to, I think I'm just, I think I am going to bring back some other segments. Um, I think I'm going to do a quick preview, but I do also want to talk about the box office because I feel like, um, now with Doolittle out and covering that aspect of the box office, I think that's going to make for an interesting discussion. So for the first time since the reboot. Let's do the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. Box office report I do through Box Office Mojo, which has I be, which looks like has gone completely uh, over to IMDb. Apparently, IMDb bought out Box Office Mojo. I think they're all owned by Amazon. But yeah, uh, let's take a look at uh, the weekend winners and losers for this. Uh, Looking at, uh, we're not going to do the top, we're going to do the full 10, not the top sevens anymore. I'm done trying to make the sevens a thing. So, um, the top 10 this past weekend was Frozen 2, which has raked in so far $464 million just domestically and, uh, has been in the, uh, the theaters for nine weeks. 
So yeah, it's been it, Frozen Two is still a, a conquering hero and at the box office, mainly because Disney um, forces theaters to hold them in. But that, we could go on. I could go on and on about Disney's practices. Uh, number nine is like a boss dropping down from number four. Uh, brought in thirty three point eight million dollars this weekend. Has has tot- so far grossed sixteen point nine million dollars. Um, huh. Let me see something. Um, let me open in the new tab. Getting back into the swing of this. Uh, it is. It cost $29 million to make. So it is not doing fairly well domestically. It's only made back a little over half. And worldwide has made $18.6 million. So, yeah, it's not... Like a Boss is not doing very well. Uh, I don't know if it's a complete failure, like a bomb... We'll talk about a bomb, but it's not doing very well. Number eight, uh, jumping up from number nine last week, is Knives Out, which brought in $4.3 million this weekend, has so far brought in $145.9 million domestically, uh, cost $40 million to make, and made back pretty much half of that opening weekend, has so far grossed worldwide $277.9 million. Ryan Johnson has proven that, you know, as long as you, it doesn't matter who, you know, what, he can go from Star Wars to this smaller budget, uh, whodunit murder mystery and still rake in the money because people like good movies. And if a movie's good, they'll, they'll come back to it. Something, the only way something stays is if it's got legs and people keep coming back to it. And yeah, that's how it works. Uh, number seven is dropping down for number six, Little Women which brought in $5.9 million this weekend, uh, making its current gross domestically $84.4 million. Uh, cost $40 million to make. Uh, has brought in $130 million. So good for Greta Gerwig. She brought in, even though the, the uh, Academy decided not to um, award her uh, nominee, a nomination for Best Director, her movie is still being widely uh, recognized and seen by audiences. So... That's that's what really ultimately matters more than the accolades. Dropping down from five to six is Just Mercy, one of my favorite movies uh, uh, that from last year that I didn't get to see until this year. Uh, brought in six million dollars this weekend, uh, bringing its total up to nineteen point six million dollars. Cost does not say how much it cost. I'm guessing probably twenty to fifty million dollars, depending on how much. Um, their salaries were uh, so far has brought in twenty two point nine million dollars. So hopefully at least broke even. But yeah, I, if you haven't yet, go see Just Mercy. It is a f- phenomenal biopic, best biopic, one of the best biopics of the millennium. I'll say that much. Uh, bro- dropping down from two to five is Scott- Star Wars Episode Nine: Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker um, Brought in $8.3 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $492 million, and its international gross is over a billion dollars. Surprising no one. Yep, Star Wars still makes money. Shocker, shocker. Uh, dropping from three to four is Jumanji, the next level, which brought in $9.5 million, bringing its domestic gross to $270.4 million, and its worldwide gross to $711 million. I almost said billion there. That would have been something. But yeah, um, this franchise still has fans, even without, even though the, you know, the initial uh, movie kind of, you know, it lost uh, 
one of its real star, this new reboot has been working for audiences, and they're coming to see it. So good for it. Uh, dropping from one to three uh, this weekend from last weekend is 1917, which brought in 22 million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to 76.7, and it's um, so far made. $843.5 million worldwide. Does not say how much it cost. I'm guessing a, a probably $70 million up to 100 So easily made back its money. Uh, maybe min- plus or minus the uh, the uh, marketing. But people are, st- you know, uh, people are a sucker for a good war movie. And I'll say this. It is a technically good film that I just could not get into. But that's just me. Uh, n- next up is number two. Premiering at number two this week is Doolittle, which brought in $22.5 million domestically uh, its opening weekend. And worldwide has so far brought in $57.3 million on a $175 million budget. Now, compare that to its, its uh, competition. Jumanji, Star Wars, and um, we'll say... Uh, What's another good idea for... Com- What's another good one for competition? Um, I think we'll do that. Uh, or even like 1917. That's also from Universal Pictures. Uh, let's compare and contrast these. So, where is... Doolittle... Op- it's opening weekend brought in 27.3 domestically. Um, worldwide, only $57 million. Opening weekend for Star Wars was $177 million domestically. I don't know what the international opening... Well, shouldn't it... Uh, yeah, here we go. Um, domestic daily. Where's uh, international? Where's international? Come on, box office mojo. What the hell? Here we go. International... That's per... I'm not, I'm still trying to, sorry, I'm trying to get used to this new, um, this, this new, um, setup they've got going for it, but, okay, here we go, um, total, they don't list the total for opening internationally, but, I'm, I'm, it looks like it's about as much, if not more, than domestic opening. So Star Wars brought in big bucks. Easily made back its budget opening weekend. Jumanji caused $125 million to make. Opened uh, at $59 million. And... Um, open and... God, why can't... Why can't they just do a complete opening week? Ah, jeez. Damn it. Uh, yeah, so it basically... It looks like they made probably... Let's see. At least double that, uh, specifically with China, making $24 million opening weekend. So... This opened at about 75, let's say $80 million opening weekend. That's the biggest, that's a good chunk of its budget already made back. Just from opening weekend. 1917, we'll say $100 million opening weekend, $100 million budget, 
uh, had a limited release opening, so it only opened with $500,000, but you compare that to the weekend it went wide, which was uh, the 10th, it jumped up to $37 million domestically, and then you compare that to uh, all territories, the varying uh, degrees of opening... Um, it hasn't gone to China yet, but it's opened in like Singapore. Singapore it opened to two hundred eighty-seven thousand. Australia three million. Uh, UK nine point six million. A uh, couple hundred thousand each uh, from the domestic side. So we'll say opening weekend combined. It was probably like um, fifty, maybe sixty million dollars. That's a good chunk of the budget right there. Um, but Doolittle has made less its opening weekend than all of those movies domestically. And it looks like internationally it's not doing too hot. Like it's doing only just as well. But it's also only opened in South Korea, South Africa, and the Ukraine. So it hasn't gone to China yet, hasn't gone to Europe yet. It still has a lot. It still has a couple of openings. So the foreign box office may save this movie, but for right now, it's it, you can consider this a bomb for Universal Pictures on the level of Cats, which is why I wanted to bring this back because if uh, uh, going back to Cats, its opening weekend numbers were six million dollars on a ninety-five ninety-five million dollar budget. So far, it has only grossed $60 million worldwide. And once again, I don't know if that's included China, which is the big, which is where all the money is right now. Their market is booming. Hasn't opened in China yet. We'll see if China eats this up, but nobody's really going to see this movie. Uh, Cats is a, is a complete and total failure as of right now. China may save it. I doubt it, though. But yeah, Doolittle is not doing too hot itself. It's going to take a lot. Hopefully, once it opens wider and it gets more of an international audience, it may do better. But for right now, it's a bomb. And then you look at the number one movie this weekend, Bad Boys for Life. Cost $90 million to make. Uh, domestically, has made op its opening weekend $59 million. And so far, its worldwide gross is $106.7 million. So... Made back its budget, easy opening weekend, which means we could very well see those spinoff movies that they were hinting at uh, in the movie. But yeah, uh, that's uh, this is kind of why I wanted to bring back the box office report, because it's very interesting to see what, um, you know, what what is going on in terms of like what their people are watching. Like number one movie in this weekend in South Korea was Doolittle. Whereas in the number number one movie in the UK was 1917. Number one movie in Japan is Frozen 2. Number one movie in Germany and France is Star Wars. Number one movie in Argentina and Mexico is Jumanji. And in the Ukraine, it's Doolittle. So, I mean, you look at the foreign um, box office is, and you can kind of get an idea of what each country and each region is getting into. A lot of South, a lot of South America, Ecuador, and what's another one? There's another one. Uh, there's Ecuador. Um, where's like Brazil and Uruguay? Um, 
Dominican Republic, a lot of South America and the Caribbean are getting Paraguay, uh, Jamaica. They're all getting into Jumanji. Um, Mongolia is getting into Jumanji. Cyprus is into Cyprus, Iceland, uh, Estonia, Lebanon, Croatia, a lot of European and the Mediterranean, uh, Israel, they're all getting into 1917. Austria, the number one movie is is Knives Out. You know what? I think I might do this as well. Kind of cover the uh, the uh, foreign box office and see what everybody's getting into. So yeah, um, the number one movie in China. This is also interesting because if you cover certain international markets, their movies are going to top. China, the number one movie is... Um, a star-studded holiday ensemble comedy about pets and their owners' lives called Adoring. It is a specifically Chinese movie, and it's doing the best in their box office right now. In Russia, their number one movie is called Kolop. K-H-O-L-O-P. I, I don't know how to pronounce that. Specifically Russian movie. It is an ill-behaved, greedy man wakes up in a 19th-century village and finds he is a peasant. So it's a rag, you know riches-to-rag story um, over there in Russia. Number one in Italy is called Tolo Tolo, which is a um, story about a failed entrepreneur, seeks a new life as a waiter on a holiday village in Africa. Uh, and But the appearance of ISIS forces him to travel. Like, well, then, Italy is into something interesting right there. Uh, no idea how that's, go- how that's gonna do. There's Brazil. Uh, my mom is a character three. Uh, some series over there in Brazil. So some of these some of these uh, places have um, Indonesia. The number one movie is Underwater. Wow, that is crazy. Uh, Poland, their number one movie is a Polish movie. It's a gangst- Polish gangster movie, a uh, biopic of some famous Polish gangster. And so yeah, it's interesting to see which mark, which movie, which uh, regions have. Uh, Hollywood movie is their number one movie versus here. Uh, Czech Republic, their number one movie is Stasny Novi Rok. Stasny Novi Rok. It's a Czech movie. It's a specifically Czech movie. That's number one in their box office this weekend. Romania loved like a boss, apparently. <laughs> um, but this is all from a week ago, it looks like. I'll, I'll have to update it. Uh, later for this weekend. But yeah, it's interesting to see which regions are into which movies, be it their own cinema, be it a Hollywood release, an older Hollywood release that's got that's new to their region. It's very interesting to break this down. I think we're going to do that um, for this uh, from now on for the box office uh, report. This is fun. And uh, I'm not going to do a full trailer talk where I play the trailer and talk over it, but I will do a pr- uh, upcoming preview. This coming weekend, our big ones are going to be The Turning, which is a horror movie um, featuring, uh, crap, what's his name? Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. And, uh, well, else is in it? Uh, Finn Wolfhard, uh, Mackenzie Davis. Where do I know her from? Where do I know her from? I don't need to become... I'm not trying to be a pro. I just want to just take me to the regular IMDb. Damn it. Ah, fine. I'll do it this way. Uh, Mackenzie Davis. I know the name. Halt and Catch Fire. Um, oh, she was the Terminator uh, in the, the newest Terminator movie. She was the Grace. She was the one sent back to protect um, the, the girl. She's the new uh, 
they're, they're trying to make her out to be Linda Hamilton for this one. Uh, she's also in Black Mirror, and she was a character named Mariette in Blade Runner. Uh, she was in Martian. Okay, so I know her. Uh, she's going to be in um, this movie as well as Finn Wolfhard and Brooklyn Prince, who I don't fairly, who I don't really know. She was apparently in the Florida Project, but she looks inter- it looks her. She looks like she's giving an interesting. Per- she's apparently one of the baby birds in uh, the Angry Birds movie too. Uh, and she was also in, I'm sorry, is she, was she the little sister? I think she was the little sister in Lego Movie 2. Huh. Huh with that. Yeah, she was. Okay. Okay. Okay, yeah, I got an idea for who this, who this actress is. So yeah, I'm interested to see how she does in horror. Uh, same with, uh, Finn Wolfhard as more of a creepier role. And then the other one is, is, um, I think it came out in Britain, because I know, um, I think it came out in Britain because already because I know um, Film Brain has been talking about it, but um, um, the gentleman uh, Guy Ritchie's uh, newest movie, who I'm, who I'm guessing only got to make it because uh, he made he got to do Aladdin and made them a bunch of money, even though it didn't matter that he made it or not. Um, yeah, uh, Matthew McConaughey uh, with Charlie Hunnam. And one of my new favorites, Henry Golding. Colin Farrell's in it. Hugh Grant is in it. Um, don't recognize a bunch of these other names. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm interested to see how it turns out. So yeah, that's what's coming up. And that about does it for this week's episode, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by favoriting us on your uh, browser and while listing us on your ad blocker. And if you yourself are a podcaster, be sure to leave us an email uh, with your stuff and see if you'd like to join our our lovely fledgling little network. Be sure to also check out all of our other fine programming, such as um, Once More With Feeling, uh, The Family Business, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, all of Donna's stuff at the Snarkast, and uh, I, we've got um, the new uh, Living in the Stacks should be coming out hopefully next week. Uh, I'll be sure to announce that when it uh, comes, and then I should have something else up and running uh, next week, but uh, I'll announce that when it's ready. But yeah, if you're listening to us on the go, you can uh, find us on your various uh, podcast providers. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you are. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartMedia, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, anywhere podcasts are uh, played. And if we're not on your podcast provider, let us know so we can add ourselves to that. And then uh, if you can share us on your various social media. Uh, our social media home is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, uh, Twitter at cornjunkiepod, uh, Letterboxd, we're at cornjunkiepod as well, Instagram at popcornjunkiepodcast, not very active on there, uh, Stardust at popcornjunkie, uh, starting to catch up with all of the reviews, so hopefully I should be back to square one with that soon. And then um, be sure to support the show on Patreon if you're able to. Uh, and it's a bi-month basis, no tiers, so anybody who donates as little as a dollar a month can have access to all 10 of the previous existing uh, uh, munch-alongs and make a better movies. And we'll be able to suggest content for either future munch-alongs if we try to bring those back or future make a better movies, try to bring those, try to make that a thing again, or just suggest movies for me to review for each week. 
So, yeah, if you can donate uh, as little as a dollar a month to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie, every little bit helps. And then if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of uh, commentary on the movie, what did you think of the movies that I saw, and, you know, anything like that, I would love to have an audience feedback segment. Be sure to send those to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. Leave a message in either the subject line or the full message just to give me explicit use to use on the on the air and i'll do so otherwise i'll just paraphrase that's gonna do it for this week until next time i'm john bailey and this is the last time i listen to film twitter about disasters i'll be the judge myself the theme song for popcorn junkie is funky popcorn by the m look up funky popcorn by the letter m on soundcloud for more of their music Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. <laughs>